Hebrews chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, and let us hear together the word of the Lord. Wherefore, holy brethren, it's, that's a wonderful address, isn't it? Holy brethren, wherefore, holy brethren, brethren set apart, brethren delivered from the corruption of sin and this world. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch As he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man. But he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant. For a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end? Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said, they do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke. Howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses." But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the public reading of his infallible word and 
give us fruit in our hearts for hearing it this evening. We're going to take as our text the sixth verse of the chapter. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end? Let us bow briefly in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank thee again for thy holy word. And as we come to consider its message to our souls this evening, we pray that the Holy Spirit, of whom we have read here as the author of the scriptures, that he will come in all his quickening power into our midst and stir our souls this evening at the hearing of the the truth in the infallible word. O Lord, hear our cry. O Lord, grant that thou wilt fill me with thy Spirit's power to the very uttermost for the proclamation of thy word, for the exaltation of thy Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Visitors to the city of Boston, Massachusetts, often take the challenge of walking the Freedom Trail. It is a path that the tourist agency has marked with red paint so that you cannot lose your way if you walk that trail. It's to guide those who want to see the city's historic buildings on foot, which is about the best way to see them. Uh, Because if you have a car in Boston, it's always a question, where can you leave it and have it be there when you come back? Uh, That is often an issue there, but it's just that there isn't much place to put a car. So visitors who come to Boston know about the Freedom Trail and they want to walk on it. It's not for the faint of heart. It's five or six miles of walking. So it's like the men that we thought of this morning walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Most of the buildings that you see along the Freedom Trail date to the 18th century. They were there at the time of the events that began the War for Independence. There is one building, however, that dates to the 17th century. It was built in 1676, just 40, 56 years after the Pilgrims landed at Plymouth, and just 46 years after the foundation of the Massachusetts Bay Colony and just 40 years after the foundation of Harvard College. That house became during the 18th century the home of silversmith Paul Revere. It was then the place from which he left to begin his famous midnight ride 
on April 18, 1775. People can go into the house and tour the ancient structure with its narrow doorways, its low ceilings, and low door, door pieces so that those who are taller have to be careful and cramped rooms. So you can go into the house and you can tour it. But the home of Paul Revere, as old as it is, is very modern compared to the pyramids of Egypt that stand in the desert thousands of years after their construction. The Mayan temples of Mexico still bear witness to those who built them some more than a thousand years ago. The tropical jungles of Cambodia have not unsettled the magnificent structures of Angkor Wat, the renowned Buddhist temple. We marvel at those long-standing buildings because most buildings have a much shorter lifespan. Almost every week in this city and in others as well, crews demolish buildings that not even a century ago were new. After a few years of use, those buildings fell into disuse, decay, and finally collapse. Demolition crews have pulverized stadiums that I can remember when they were new. I remember in 1970 when the Cincinnati Reds opened Riverfront Stadium and it was billed as the most modern, the sleekest stadium for baseball that had ever been built. It is no more. And that's just over 50 years ago. But the truth is that even the oldest structures standing in this world are awaiting their destruction. Because, as Peter said, the world and everything in it will be burned up. If only our politicians took that word to heart they wouldn't be pouring billions of dollars into a scheme that's supposed to lower global temperatures by a degree in the next half century. No, there's only one building that will endure, and that is the house that Christ is building. The house that is his church The epistle to the Hebrews expounds the superiority of Jesus Christ to anything that existed under the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. The argument to Hebrews who became Christians was that they must not retreat to the old ways, to the Old Testament administration of the covenant. They must instead fill their souls with Christ, the Redeemer, and live under his gracious rule. The great danger 
for those who received this epistle, always lay in a profession of faith that turned out to be a counterfeit. People professed to be followers of Christ, and they did in the first century, but subsequently they returned to the old religion and to the old ways of the sacrificial system. Such an apostasy, for that is what it was, became one of the themes of this epistle. And it was the reason for the exhortations that we can read throughout Hebrews to hold fast to the truth of the gospel of Christ. Sometimes today we think, what, 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 what was the problem? But for those people who had come out of Judaism and who were being led to believe that they needed to get back into Judaism, it was a problem. This epistle places great emphasis on the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And that's a doctrine that I love to proclaim. Because the divine argument is that the perseverance of the saints is the clear evidence that the work of God's Spirit has taken place in the heart. Those who are truly Christ's people will persevere. They will hold fast. That is, they will go on with Christ all the way to the end. And it won't be anything heroic. They will simply go on day after day, day after day, day after day. And sometimes then they can look back over many years in our reckoning, but they just continue. There are great pressures against those who follow Christ. I don't need to tell you that. It's not a surprise, not a revelation, especially in our time when even at the highest levels of the national government there is a commitment to perversion on a grand scale. Christians are going to meet opposition and persecution. They will encounter the temptation then to look for an easier way, to adopt a religion that has greater acceptance from the world and an easier path through the world. The message, though, of the Spirit of God is that Christian people not only must, but will refuse all those temptations. They hold fast what they have received. They fill their minds and souls with the thoughts, as we see in verse 1 here, of the apostle and high priest of their profession, Christ Jesus. Consider him, consider him. Our blessed Savior left us an example of faithfulness in all which he did. He did not look back. He didn't wish for an easier way. The devil tempted him. Throw yourself off the temple. And it's written in the word. He'll send his angels to rescue you, to catch you, 
lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Jesus remained true to his calling from the beginning all the way to the end. The emphasis of our text tonight is that those who are his people will follow in that train. Oh, they will have moments of waywardness, moments of weakness, Moments of trembling, but they will not abandon the way. They will not throw Christ Jesus overboard. This text addresses those who profess to be Christ's followers and leaves a solemn word as well for those who are still outside of Christ. The only building that will endure is the house of Christ. Each of Christ's people belongs to this house and may take confidence that the house will always stand. In this passage, we have read the exhortation that those who are not in the house should stop hardening their hearts against the gospel and hear the voice of Christ. If ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Because those who hear his voice will be part of the house of God. And I want you to think upon that theme with me in the moments that remain to us this evening. The house of God. In the Hebrew language, there is a compound word that has come into English in the names of a number of places. Beth ale. Beth ale. Beth meaning house. Ale meaning God. Bethel, the house of God. So for those who grew up in Judaism, and that was the audience to which this epistle was being written. For those raised in Judaism, the concept of the house of God was very strong. If you think back to the wanderings of the children of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years, we read about those 40 years in verse 17. What were the people longing for during those years as they came across the same places again and again? They wanted a settled place. They wanted a place where they could set up the tabernacle of witness on a permanent basis and leave it set up, not have to take it down and pack it all up and take it on to the next location. But it was not till the building of Solomon's temple that the desire for a settled place for God's house became a reality. And the history of that nation after that time displayed the attachment of the people to the house of God even in days of apostasy where they would swear by the house of God, by the temple. But in the New Testament... Believers learned 
that the house of God was not a physical structure. In fact, they discovered that the existence of the temple in the Old Testament was the prophecy of the building of God's true house in the New Testament. Christ is the builder of the house. He calls it his church. The scriptures declare that this building has only one foundation. And we read of that foundation in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter three. And verse eleven. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The text says we are his house. Whose house are we? So that in every place where there is a true congregation of Christ's blood-bought people, you see a local manifestation of the house of God that spans time and place. It's the church of Jesus Christ. So the question of our text is, are you part of that house? Are you in union with Jesus Christ? If not, then the word of the scripture is, harden not your heart. Let us consider three statements this evening about the house of God. First of all, Christ's people are his dwelling place. Christ's people are his dwelling place place. The text sets down the truth that we are Christ's house. And as such, we are the place, even without a building, in which our Lord has chosen to dwell and to place his name in this world. Houses are for dwelling, and Christ's house is for his dwelling. We read that Christ is present with his people. We're going to look at several scriptures. The first one, John chapter 14. John chapter 14 and verse 23. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He said, he would come and make his abode. The scriptures expound the truth then that ought to bring comfort to Christ's people, Christ's promise is he will never abandon his people. He will never forsake his people. His people will always be able to draw consolation from his promise. He will be with them. 
Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. In the incarnation and virgin birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what was the name that he was given in the prophets? Emmanuel. Emmanuel. With us. God. He is with us. He makes his abode with his people And he carries out that dwelling through the ministry of his spirit. We were just in John 14. Let's turn back to that passage once again. John 14 and verse 16. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. The fact that you have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you individually and as a body of believers is the truth that must never elude us. Christ is living in us. We tend to think of the house of God as a physical structure, but this house is simply a place where the house of God assembles. He is dwelling in his church. And he has fashioned his church from his saints. He has built the house. He is building the house. Not we ourselves. He has bought us by his precious blood. And he has made us into his living stones. Turn to First Peter We looked at 1 Peter some this morning, but let's turn back there again. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. Ye also as lively stones, living stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood, to offer up accept, uh, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Christ has made us living stones in his house. And it is all through the blood that Christ shed upon the cross. That blood has justified us. That blood is sanctifying us. And so Christ is dwelling in us. And the idea that we are Christ's house reveals the impact of what Christ has done in our lives. That's the second statement I would leave with you. Christ's dwelling place 
demonstrates the power of sovereign grace. God takes stones that were worthless and makes them parts of his house. They become shining jewels in the structure. They experience transformation so that when you are part of Christ's house, you don't live any longer according to the patterns of this world. And that application appears throughout the New Testament, but especially in passages that address the question of the building of the house. Let us turn first of all to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We looked at 1 Corinthians 3 not too long ago. 1 Corinthians 3 verses 16 and 17. Know ye not that ye, notice how he puts it, that ye, meaning the people in the church of Corinth, ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Then let us turn to chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 6 and verse 19. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Then 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16. And what agreement, notice this language, hath the temple of God. So if we take what Paul was saying in the first epistle, in this same light, the temple of God, what did he say? He said, ye, the people of the congregation, ye are the temple of God. So here, when he asks the question, what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? He's placing the whole concept of separation on the ground of this truth, that the temple of God is the dwelling place of Christ and has no agreement then with idols. He went on to say in verse 16, for ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So that those who have been made part of Christ's house are new creations. They don't live any longer as they used to live. They can't order their lives any longer by the dictates of the popular culture. They are living as strangers and pilgrims in this world. Their faces looking toward the celestial city. Being a follower of Christ then is not a game. It is a life-changing experience. 
a life-defining experience. And it has practical ramifications for the way you present yourself to the world, the way you speak, the way you earn your living, what you do with what you earn, among other things, the way you dress, all of these things mark you out as being part of Christ's house. You wouldn't be too happy to have somebody build a house for you and to go to the dump and collect a whole bunch of rotten lumber and say, well, this is an inexpensive way to build. We're going to build the house this way. You wouldn't do that. Christ does not do that. He doesn't put into his house anything that is defiled. When people see the lives of those who are in the house of Christ, they witness the power of divine grace. And that is all we can say about it. They are witnessing that power, whether they realize it or not. Because that grace changes people from sinners into saints. And then our text emphasizes one other important reality. Christ's people never depart from him. There's a striking word in our text. I hope you don't miss it. I'm going to do my best to be sure you don't miss it. It comes after the words, whose house are we, if, if, how do you know that you are part of the house of God? You hold fast what you have received to the end. Now, there were people that Paul mentions in his epistles who appeared to be part of the house of God, but they were not. Demas, Paul wrote near the end of his life, hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed. Those who are in the house of Christ, hold fast to the end. Notice that this epistle makes a big issue of this doctrine of perseverance. Chapter 4 of Hebrews and verse 14. Seeing then that we have, I've always loved this verse. It's been precious to me since the days of seminary. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. That's fact. We have such a high priest. So seeing that we have such a high priest, let us hold fast our profession. We often go on to the verses that follow it. Speaking about the throne of grace, and those verses are important, but let us not miss this exhortation. Let us hold fast, because we have a high priest who's passed into the heavens. 
Turn over to chapter 10 of Hebrews. Chapter 10 and verse 23. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promised. Christ is faithful. We are in the house of Christ. He has promised He will not abandon us. He will not forsake us. So let us hold fast. And what does that holding fast mean? It means that we maintain the truth concerning Christ. That we uphold the truth concerning Christ. That we declare the truth concerning the word of God. Paul had a lot to say about holding fast. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, we read one of his exhortations. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Having said in verse 12, that he was persuaded that Christ was able to keep what he had committed unto him against that day, the day of Christ's appearing. So on the basis of That assurance, Paul wrote to Timothy, hold fast the form of sound words. So the form of sound words becomes important. What we find in the scriptures of truth, he was saying to Timothy, hold fast that form. So you refuse the temptation for the sake of cheap appeal or popularity to cut the corners from the gospel. To say, well, Jesus has a wonderful plan for you. When the only plan for those who have not trusted in Christ is judgment. So you refuse the temptation to cut the corners off the gospel so that it will become a more pleasant message to sinners. We ought not to seek to make it a pleasant message for sinners. This holding fast relates, as we find in our text, to confidence and rejoicing of the hope. And here's where I want to leave you this evening. Holding fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. So it's not just a matter of a stoical perseverance. Well, things are bad, but we're just going to keep on anyway. The rejoicing of the hope means that there is joy in this life of belonging to Christ's house. We have confidence. It's not a gritty determination that we're talking about here but just a steady perseverance, day by day, taking care of those things, some very mundane, uh, some that we would think, what is the spiritual significance or benefit of these things? But we just keep on because you know what's going to happen to you. The knowledge of what's going to happen 
the knowledge of what has happened gives you the greatest hope so that you can rejoice in being part of the house of God. We are his house. Let us hold fast that hope to the end. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we give thanks to thee for thy mercy to us again this evening that thou hast called us to give our attention to thy word. And we thank thee for this word that teaches us again what it means to be part of thy house. We thank thee that when we gather here, we have a a visible manifestation of the house of God. This is thy dwelling place. O Lord, give us the grace to hold that confidence and to hold it fast and to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. O Lord, bless thy people, we pray, and grant grace in these days that they may have guidance from thy spirit and that thou wilt work that guidance in the hearts of others to lead a man here to undertake the care of thy people. So, Lord, we wait upon thee. We ask thee that thou wilt write the word of God upon our hearts, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.